All right, we have got a wonderful subject to hit on. We have had a um, journey in the book of Hebrews that has taken us from so much doctrine, right? We start out in, in chapters 1, 2, and 3, and the focus is upon Jesus as the Son. Did anybody come to think about that a little bit this week as you looked at the subject of faith and as you tried to see the flow of thought in here? Did anybody here come up with a, a, any kind of a revelation about the, how Jesus is introduced in the beginning? How does that fit into our subject of faith? And, and um, why this author starts there? Did anybody kind of ponder on any of those things? Okay, good. And when you consider the, the foundation then of that knowledge of what faith is, how it's lived out, and the kind of faith that's being discussed here, did any of you uh, come to a place where you saw that you needed to di- discern between the apples and oranges of a sub- this particular subject of faith? That there is a splitting of hairs about what kind of faith might be being discussed as it's brought up. I mean, sometimes the word faith is brought up and it's, it looks like it's telling you to do something. Other times it brings the, the subject of faith up and it looks t- to me like it's talking about the, the entering into faith. So those two qualities are very distinct. Then later it goes on and, and it starts talking about the things that you're looking forward to. And yet there's another quality or aspect of faith. So we have three aspects. We have apples, oranges, and pears in this particular book on the subject of faith, right? When you, st- when you begin the book of Hebrews in chapters 1 through 3, how is Jesus presented? Okay, he is the Son. He is God the Son. Now, when you consider him being presented as being the Son, what do you think, how do you think these recipients in particular were perceiving this, this insight, this found, I mean, what, to me it just seems strange. Like, if you're going to talk to them about a faith walk, and, he, and we know that by the time we hit five, he starts rebuking them and correcting them on the error of their way. But, but he spent three or four chapters laying down something first about who Jesus is as the Son, right? So what seems to be the important qualities in those three chapters? Let's just start there. The doctrines and prophecies that have been taught so far. Let's go over here. Concerning faith, he establishes what is to be believed before he starts going into the why, doesn't he? So in chapters 1 through 3, we look at the what is to be be believed. And we are going to get into the word definitions and so forth, but I kind of think this is... It's just like in any other time that we have uh, issues that come up or certain subjects that come up. It's nice to go back and see the flow of thought in relationship to that one particular focus of your attention. 
you know, we've spent a lot of time focusing on the better than quality of how Jesus is compared to that which they had previously, which was the law. But now what she's asking us to do is to pull back now and say, concerning the subject of faith, what is it that this author is trying to impress upon these believers and us as, as she goes through this? Yes. Mm-hmm. You know, and he has told them throughout all of history. You know, and so it's going back to say that God has not changed. Mm-hmm. He's going to do it exactly as he said. I actually think that's a really, I think that's actually a really good point, too, that in the idea that he, th- this is not new insight for them, right? I mean, the, the fact that Jesus is the son, is that something that they were looking forward to? The coming of a son, right? And so when you see in chapter 1, he opens up, how much of chapter 1 is a quote from an Old Testament message that a prophet concerning the coming of, quote, the begotten son, right? And so it seems to me like right away, he, he, f- before he gets into anything else in this book, he starts by establishing the what of their faith. Before he, start, before he tries to convince them that Jesus is that one that was prophesied. So it begins with a, with a foundational uh, teaching about who, who this Jesus is. So in chapter 1, we see Jesus is presented as who? The Son, okay? And I'm going to put it this way, God the Son. And why is that a significant way to, to kind of phrase that in this book, that he is God the Son? Why is it important that he is God? When it comes to installing a new covenant or fulfilling a covenant or closing out an old covenant to open a new covenant to to establish something new, what has to happen? Right. Can I be freed from an old covenant... If the one who's made it still lives. Now, what, so we learned that in chapter 9, right? That the, the one who makes the covenant must die. And in, the, in regards to kind of a, a nuance of, of the way that we can use that word covenant can also be the word will. Your New Testament is the new covenant. The Old Testament is the old covenant. But it can also be the old will and the new will. These are considered... Um, uh, legally binding contracts. That's what a covenant is. It's a legally binding contract. And so it, I love the fact that most of you have done the covenant studies with, with us together in this group, and several times actually, because it, once you come to understand the subject of covenant, you better tie so many things together in Scripture. And in this particular book, this subject of that Jesus is God, starting out in chapter 1, becomes so essentially important when you finally get to chapter 9 when he talks about the one who made it it's until he dies right it's not you're not able to even become heirs of that which God had promised 
right? You can't receive the inheritance of the one who made a promise until they pass away. That's when you gain that inheritance. And so chapter 9 presents that. So back, when you go back to chapter 1 and you see that the first thing he, this author does is to establish doctrinal knowledge about who Jesus is. And the first thing he tells us is, go back to chapter 1. Let's look at it together real quick just to refresh. There you go, which is where we're heading to because we're going to look at these elementary teachings. One of the things we looked at when, when we were trying to define the subject of faith was by the time you hit, was it chapter, um, hold on, let me see, three, four, five, since six. Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. So chapter 6, verse 1, again, uses that word faith, which is one of the places that you would have gone and you would have begun to make your little list about what do you learn, what do you discern about faith. And the interesting thing is, even though it's only used in one verse, in order to get the fullness of that, you have to back up, get what's said in chapter 5 before it, and pull it forward to get the fullness of what the next... Uh, part of the thought, the flow of thought is about. But before you're even ready to go into the elementary teachings, he has already laid down the elementary teachings. I think that's pretty cool. You don't notice that, that, that he's, that's what he has done or that's what he is doing. This is when I go, you, this has got to be a divinely inspired writing. There is no way a human person could be this careful to have done exactly what he needed to do the, so that by the time he hits to the end of his sermon, it's tied back to the, the beginning of it. And we have talked over and over in this uh, study about the fact that this author, he picks up subjects and then he, he adds to it progressively as he goes along. You do not get any one full teaching on any subject in one verse or one little chapter as we've broken you know which are nothing but human you know uh, divisions anyway we've marked them out so that that we have chapter one chapter two those are our doing but go back to chapter one with me and look at the beginning here where he says in, that God after he had spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days he's, he has spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things. Now, this is really interesting, too, because here we have the subject of him being an heir, and then the fact that we become an heir, how? Through his death, right? When we get into chapter 9. He is, now here we go, Jesus is, and then he goes on to explain to him that he is what? Yeah. The exact representation, and later when he, when he starts quoting then, verses 5 to 9, he quotes him and he calls him the begotten son. Now, does anybody have any um, insights about the idea of that begotten son? What does that title mean? And what is the son of God's title? What, how, what kind of a title is that? Does anybody have any ideas about it or thought? Okay. Exactly, because it's not the idea of created, and so there goes back to the idea that you just said, Lisa, about it's unique, it's not, uh, it's a one-of-a-kind thing. Well, that's because he's not the, a created son, 
um, as in the, the natural way of things, but it's something that is unique in that it is the, the um, he has been a, cre he was created. Right. Exactly. Be I th and I think that when you see the use of that begotten, it talks about the flesh of it. And that's why when you follow it up in chapter 2, the very next thing he says about this son who came, at that first he says the son is deity, right? He is God. So, and he does, does he not actually say that, right? Uh, what verse was it that, oh, in verse 8. Your throne, all God, is forever and ever. So he is God. He is God. And then in two, Jesus, who is God, came in flesh. Now, for these believers who have come into this, this new thing called Christianity, they have a foundation, a historical knowledge in their background of the old system of the law. And in the old system of the law, what was prepared for them through that? What did God do concerning that old covenant? What was it used for? To be a tutor, wasn't it? To teach them the things that they needed to know so that when the begotten Son of God did arrive, they would recognize him. And so that they would understand spiritual truths about him that they otherwise would not understand, right? For them to understand how Jesus is the great high priest, how he is the better sacrifice, how he is um, each of these qualities that he systematically goes through, and the how, he, how he is the new covenant that was promised, all these things are laid out for them through a picture that was given to them. And we've been talking about pictures a lot in this particular uh, uh, book here about the idea that through pictures God teaches spiritual truths that we would other otherwise not comprehend we wouldn't fully understand them so he gives us something in the here that we can understand so that we can come to see the spiritual knowledge of it or the spiritual inside of it okay so in chapter two Jesus got was God came, come in flesh and in chapter two does it tell us why he came what was ultimately the purpose for his taking on of flesh Exactly, to, to, to give propitiation, to make propitiation for sin. That's one. And there's one more very important, significant thing, which takes us all the way back to Genesis. And what did he accomplish by making that propitiation? Say it again. Yes. That's exactly it. He says in chapter uh, 2, verse 14, he said, And therefore he, that he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. Now, the idea of, of fear, how does that relate to the subject of faith that you have seen as you've gone through this, your homework this week? Has there been any kind of correlation in those two things? They are absolute opposites, aren't they? They're, if you look at the subject of faith, the contrast to it is fear. 
It's one of the contrasts. It's, it's not the exclusive one, but it is one of them. So it, what kind of a, of a tool Satan has if he can cause us to live under the fear rather than walking in the knowledge of truth. Now, what, ha what has happened as this author goes on into chapter 5, when he's talking to them about um, Jesus being after the order of Melchizedek, he brings up another subject, right? And when he gets to that point, he begins to rebuke them, because what have they failed in? What is it that they had actually failed it to do? They had not matured. They, were, they had remained infants. What does this author instruct to them concerning faith and concerning growing strong so that they're not fearful? What does he instruct them that, that was the requirement for faith to grow in the way that it should? Staying strong. Obedience, staying strong. That's right, being in the word. Let's go back and look at that now real quick. I want to go back and look at it. We have to kind of jump around with today's homework in order to get the full pictures on all this. If you go to chapter 5, verses 11 to 14, he's talking to them about um, their inability. It, it does, the subject of fear comes up early because right away what we see is these are people who apparently are in danger of waning in their faith walk. They're, they're in danger of falling back or of giving up or of not pressing into, right? They've not um, uh, even left those elementary teachings and pressed into maturity. And the reason they have not done so, he says it's hard to explain because you've become dull of hearing. So for by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness. So that's what you brought up, Celeste. And for he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature. And then what does he say happens with those who have the word of God and who stay in the word of God, who know the word of God, what, ha what is the result of that? You can discern good and evil. This, to me, is something that has come up many times in my um, years of teaching and in just in being a child of God in the household of faith with others. Um, there, there have been more times when I have had conversations with people who have said to me, I just don't have time to be in a good Bible study like precept, for instance, because it takes too much time. What would you say this author would have to say about that? There you go. Because the result of your not taking the time to train yourself up. Now, I'm, on, I'm talking to the choir here, you guys, because you all are. But, but as you engage with others who want to give the excuse that they do not, just don't have time, to, to do this kind of an in-depth study. And, and I'm not saying that there's not seasons in our life for other things. I'm not saying that. But, but on the whole, there should be time somewhere at, someone, at some point, right, that people be in the Word of God. Because it's so important that this author says, look, you've remained infants, and for that reason, you've come into the danger of not being able to even discern good from evil. Because how is good and evil, how is the ability to discern life that comes at you, when, when events happen around you, how do you discern what is good and what is evil? How, what is your plumb line by which you measure? It's by God's word, but if you really haven't studied it properly, then 
Right. Absolutely. So out of the lack of discipline, because they, he's, and he's really pretty direct. He says, you, at this point by now, you should be teachers. So it isn't that they haven't had time. It isn't that they were just brand new babies and, you know, and he's just not cutting them any slack. But he, he says, basically, you have had more time than you needed. You ought to be teachers by now. But because you have not disciplined yourself, you need practice in the word of God. And practice, uh, there, there was an old children's song called P Practice Makes Perfect. Do you guys remember that one? It was a salty, I think, song, or a, maybe Colby, the talking computer, one of those little kids' songs. I know that tells you my Sunday school days. But, but I remember practice makes perfect. And, and, it, and he says, and if I practice, then perfect I shall be. And perfect does not mean perfect from the quality or the standard of that you never will make a mistake or that you're absolutely at the at the the pivotal point, you'll never ascend higher. It means the idea of having the completeness in your life that you need. The tools that are that are, have been established have been established because you have put yourself in the relationship with God necessary to establish the, the understanding and the discernment and the wisdom that you need to be able to discern from good and evil. So interestingly, so often people talk about the idea of the word of God as being something that you strive to for intellectual purposes. Oh, you know, you're just, you're just a, you know, you're, you're an elitist or you're an, an intellectual person because you study the word of God to this degree. I just don't care about all those details. It's just not that important to me. But I know, so. It's so much Mm-hmm. Yes. How many times have we gone into scriptures that we have read a hundred times before and, and it's like totally And you totally get a different point out. That's true. That is true. I think the author, both directly and indirectly, throughout the book is telling them if you had moved beyond into maturity, you would know as believers that going back and worshiping under the old covenant for whatever reason is evil. Very good. So because the it's evil. It's evil. And it, and it also suggests that there is a question. It poses a question in his mind, does it not, about whether or not they actually have entered into faith. He, before this, back in chapter uh, 4, he says, therefore let us fear, but in this case, this fear is the fear of God. This is the righteous kind of fear. Let us fear while a promise remains of entering his rest that any one of you may seem have to have come short of it. He's concerned. He says, I'm not saying you are and you're, or you aren't. He's not making a declaration of to you're saved or you're not saved. He's not doing that. He is speaking congregationally to all of them, and he is literally saying to them, you need to examine your own heart. And what I'm saying to you is if I am not seeing the right kind of behaviors in your life, it leaves me to question potentially maybe some of you have not actually even entered and you need to make sure that you have entered and so he has laid down some of these truths in chapter one that Jesus is the son the one that you have been waiting for the one that was prophesied he is God come in flesh that that takes you all the way back to those those very elemental uh, teachings in your mind that are presented in Genesis chapters uh, one two and three 
even in four, when we get on to Cain and Abel. We see Jesus is God the Son. He is God. And in chapter 2, Jesus is God who came in flesh. He came to make propitiation for sin and to, um, uh, hold on a second. Render the devil powerless. That's how it's stated. I was looking for their word, rendered. To render the devil powerless. Those are fundamental truth uh, statements, fundamental doctrines about who Jesus is that he lays down in chapters 1 and 2 so far for us that help to establish an understanding of what is to be believed. It isn't just... Because in chapter 11, what is the statement there about, about what we are to believe? You're to believe what about God? That he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. Okay, so in those two statements, is that fully developed? Is that a fully developed, complete, comprehensive definition of what faith is? No. It's one quality, and it's the quality that he emphasizes in that particular chapter. But he has already, before that, in, cha- in these previous, actually, the whole first ten chapters, he has laid down fundamental doctrinal truths that, first and foremost, he begins with who Jesus is, and then he talks about how Jesus is better than what they had before, so that they would not be in danger, as what Craig said, of going back to that old system, they would, have, they would, because of their knowledge of the truth, would not be in danger of falling back to something that was evil as opposed to that which is good, right? Now, really interesting, when I say that the old is evil, I'm not saying that the law is evil, because Romans actually talks about that. Paul explains, is the law evil then, or is it bad? May it never be. And then he goes on to explain that the purpose for the law, however, was not that it was the, the end to everything, but that it was a part of, the, of God's plan that would lead people to come into faith and to recognize the Savior, the Son, the begotten, the one promised. And go back into Genesis, the seed. To recognize the seed when he came, they needed to have the law as a as a fundamental tool in their life on a daily basis through all those generations that they would not forget those principles of truth about what the purpose of the coming seed would be. And so once he came then, he becomes in the book of Hebrews and he systematically goes through and says, this is how Jesus has uh, fulfilled that which was promised in those prophecies. And he said, and that Jesus is better than your old system so you have no need to go back to the old. Discerning good from evil comes from a knowledge of of the word of God, and in this case, a knowledge specifically about who Jesus is, that Jesus is the Son, Jesus is God come in flesh. The reason he came in flesh was to make propitiation and to render the the devil powerless. Chapter 3, then, we go on, we see that um, he tells us that concerning who Jesus is, that Jesus is a heavenly calling right? Um, when he speaks about this heavenly calling, what, how, does he, um, how does he build that up in that particular chapter? What is it that he's telling them that they must do concerning the one Jesus who has come, the Son? What does he say in chapter 3? Consider it, Consider it okay. 
There you go. He is a heavenly calling. He is the apostle and high priest of, of the calling. And he says, therefore, he quotes some verses. It's interesting the way he does this. When he quotes, he says uh, the very first one in verse 7, therefore, just as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your heart. So in chapter, I'm sorry, did some, no, okay. In chapter 3, he says then that God has spoken to us. In his son, so that's, we start out that what Jesus is, then he says he has spoken to us in, in his son, right? And then he says about that, therefore, if you, when you hear his voice, yep. Okay, the result of faith in verse, so that's in chapter 3, correct? When you get to the end of chapter 3, he uses a historical reference. Again, he gives a quote out of the Old Testament for them. Again, a, a perfect example of why they needed the knowledge of the word of God, and they should have been well trained in it by now, so that when they read these old passages, they would be able to bring them forward into the fulfillment of them when it occurred. And he says, but you know what? When those of old were given my word, when I spoke to them in the wilderness, what did they do concerning God's word? They hardened their hearts, and they did he does, does he give us any idea about the idea of how we know that their hearts were hardened? How, if you came up to me, could you see if my heart is hard? Could you see that by just looking at me? What is it that you're going to look at? All you have to look at is the evidence of my walk. You look at my life to say, is that person loving God or not loving God? And it, you're at the, the way that you come to a conclusion on that is based on the behaviors in my life, and the attitudes in my life, right? Well, if, if, if you go back and do the study on, you know, where God was unhappy with them, there's a couple of places. One was when they got to um, Rephidim or something like that, and they complained that there was no water. Right. And, and so it's like, is God just bringing us out here to, is he with us or not? So again, lack of faith, right? They had no faith in believing that what God said he would do for them was true. The second one was, and it isn't necessarily faith in, in the Redeemer or faith in the Messiah. It's just faith in God's, God's faith in word. God. And when he told them that I'll bring you to the promised land and, and you, will over, you will overtake it. Mm -hmm. They didn't believe him there either after the ten spies came back and, and said, oh man, these people are too strong for us. Right. And so it's, it's basically they're not believing God when he says, I'll take care of you and where I'm taking you. Mm -hmm. They even did it again with, with Joshua and the spies that were sent into the land and the ones that came back. Only two of them came back with a good report. The others were, oh my goodness, we're like grasshoppers, you know. So they, they had this fear that, they, that they, would, they would be overcome, that they would be crushed instead of believing what God had promised them, which was, I am giving this land to you. Now, how do we apply that in our life for you and I? What is it that God has promised you and I? that we do not yet see, but that we, okay, the most basic is eternal life itself, and? The new kingdom. 
the new king, the new heaven and the new earth, that's way down the road yet for us, yes? Right. So it, it looks to me like then now again, like I said, you've got apples, oranges, and pears, right? You've got justification, you've got sanctification, you've got glorification subjects that keep coming up. Sometimes he's talking about things that, that um, are doctrinal points concerning faith that establish your faith. That's called justification. That which... You believe, it brings you in, it's a once for all, it's done, it's complete, it's by grace. It has nothing to do with what you're doing. It has nothing to do with how you act out or walk out your faith afterwards. It, justification is purely by grace, right? But other times he is saying, okay, now I should be seeing things in your life. And he's saying, I'm not seeing these things. And so he's making a judgment about whether or not they were justified based on what he's, uh, the evidence that's being seen in their life. And then the way he does that then also, as, as he's trying to encourage them in a faith walk, he's talking to them about the things that are to come, the promises that are down the road. And so when he hits chapter 11, he pulls back to that which they know, which they're f somewhat familiar with, which are these Old Testament prophets, and he speaks about their personal walk, how they walked with God and the things that they did right, that were the evidences that faith was existing, was true in the life of those individuals. And so that's what we're looking at today, is we're looking to see the, the subject of faith on the whole in this book. But as we do so, you and I have to be careful that each time we hit the subject, we discern. Now, is he talking here about the subject of justification, or is he talking about the faith walk of sanctification? Or... Is he talking about something which is being promised to them down, the, down in the future? And what's interesting about the way this particular, I think this author is an awful lot like Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. I've decided that that's probably why I've, you know, I've been cringing through some of these points. Not that, not that I can't comprehend it, but that you have to constantly be on your toes, sort of, uh, mentally, to discern the apples from the oranges from the pear statements. And sometimes this author blends them in such a way, like Isaiah does, in that you have to say, oh, well, if he's talking about this, this is true. It, this is what he means. But if he's talking about this, then this is what he means. And if he's talking about this one, then this is what he means. And all three are true, right? As long as you don't violate the known doctrine in deciding which one you think he's actually talking about. It is, and we are going to get there, too. Yes, rest. Okay, so tell me what you think about rest. Well, it's, it's the three okay, and again, there's a discerning between what is he literally meaning in the moment that this is being written, and then is there, uh, beyond that, is there a higher truth message that can apply in a more spiritual way to all of us, right? So many people often jump in and they really, I'm the opposite. I tend to go, what does he literally mean? And I kind of eliminate everything else up front. I want to know, what is he speaking of? To whom is he speaking? Why did he say that? What was the actual intention of his statement? 
And, but, but uh, most people are not like me. They're the, they go to, how does this apply to me now? And they go to that level of personal application. And that's because we've been trained to do that for years and years and years. Um, both are good. No, not, you know, neither are one good and one bad. They're both good. But I do think that when you're studying inductively, you want to start first with what is the author speaking to and about and, and, and to whom. Get that down first and then go to the next level of analyzing it for personal application. So this week has been an awful lot of analyze it and come to some personal application. That's kind of what our homework has been all about for this week. So that's going to be fun for, I think, a lot of reasons because we can take these truth messages and make an application for you and I today because are, do you think that, that, for instance, that on the whole the body of Christ is well equipped and has pressed in to the maturity of their faith? No, not really. So when you have conversations, how do they tend to go? When you start talking about anything, like he said, you know, there's so many things I'd like to say to you about, um, about, um, ah, the, the name left me. Melchizedek, thank you. And he says, but I can't because you, you don't have the base knowledge for me to be able to go into that yet. You remain infants. What about the subject of fear? How many Christians do you know live in fear of the world, of, their, of what's to come, of, of you know, the, the things that are unknown, of stepping out in faith? Maybe they've had a calling on their heart by God and they... they, they they know this is something the Lord wants them to do, but they're so afraid of doing it. They're so afraid of failing. Much like what you said, Craig, God had called them to go into the promised land, and they're fearful of it. What does he say to them at the close then of chapter uh, 3 about those who um, had that kind of fear? It was unbelief. Did, literally, he's saying fear is unbelief and those who have unbelief what did he, what happened to them by demonstration of that in that quote they did not enter into God's rest now that's not saying none of them were saved okay what it's saying is it's teaching a truth uh, factor that says faith is lived out by being obedient to God how do we see faith actually demonstrated in the life of a believer? Is A believer is obedient in principle to God's word. We're not 100% perfect, obviously, but the attempt there is that we live our lives on a, on a daily basis looking to please God, looking to be obedient to God. That's our heart's desire, right? Even if we'll fail in it once in a while, our desire is to be obedient. Okay, so... If we see then that what is to believe is that Jesus is God the Son, he's God come in flesh, and that because he came in flesh, he made propitiation for sins, and he has now rendered that devil powerless, that, that the message then of Hebrews on the whole is that God had spoken to them in the prophets previously, but now he's spoken to us in the Son. And just like in the ancient of days, those who rejected God's word were not obedient to God's word. It was a demonstration of unbelief. He's saying, same is true now. My son has come. My son is God. And, his, and your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And he says, when my son has spoken, then you are to listen. 
and to be obedient to it. The result of that faith then is what? They enter the rest of God. And for a, a very specific literal understanding of that for these people at that time in history, what, Carrie? What does that mean for them that they've entered into the rest of God? Oh, no, I don't mean Israel. I mean uh, the new church. Yeah, they've entered into salvation, which is by this better sacrifice and this better covenant. And therefore, what kind of rest is he, is he alluding to here? Rest from, from doing what? What were they? The works of the law, the temple works. So if you want to go to a very literal understanding, he's speaking there about the works of the law. Going to the temple, sacrificing the lamb, and fulfilling all the other requirements of the law. In the new covenant, you don't do that. You enter into the rest of God because God has now accomplished it by the Son. The result of faith is that they enter the rest of God. How would that apply to you and I? I mean, obviously, we don't have a temple we're going to go back to. and we've, I doubt that there's anyone in here who's actually performed sacrifices of lambs, right? Do people tend to do that a lot? Do, p do people tend to go back to... Why? Why do, we, why do we keep wanting to fall back to good works for... What they call, they call that the, uh, there was antinomians and Judaizers, the Judaizers wanted to add to, yeah, right? Why does that seem to... Okay. There you go. Okay, so again, we're back to being able to discern good from evil by our knowledge of doctrinal truths and then understanding the, the reason we are doing good works. So many don't have those doctrinal bases, you know, laid down so they understand by grace they've been saved. But why are you, why does it say then to work out your, your faith in fear and trembling? If you're not working for faith, why does it say to work, work your faith out in fear and trembling? Okay, reward. What do we see at the close of chapter 10 and into 11? What is he talking about to them about a reward? Does he mention rewards in there? What does he say that they are to do? Right. There's a, there's a sense of if, if we have to work out or work for our salvation, you know, the people that believe that, I think there's a sense of pride in that. There you go. And then you can say that, hey, I've had something to do with my salvation. Yes. And with grace. I can tell you, I feel so much better when I'm in control. 
If I'm the one is controlling the factors in my life, you know, it, it, and I know I'm, I'm, parenting has been, was a tough job for me because I wanted to control everything that my kids did and what they said and how they behaved. And, you know, and so because you want them in these little boxes and you want to control it all, you know, the same thing is true kind of in my spiritual life. I want the control so that, so that when I've done the things that I've done, I feel safe and, and secure, right? What does that show, though, about a person's faith walk when they operate from that perspective? It actually, it, okay, that we're, that we're still in control. God's not in control, okay? There you go. Boy, we just keep coming back circle, don't we? It's back to the ignorance of the doctrinal truths about how you've entered into salvation. If you are resting on works and works and works, and that's how you think that you are pleasing God is your works, then what happens is that you have forgotten those doctrinal truths about how you came into salvation to begin with, the justification of your quality of salvation. You have forgotten that by grace you are saved, not by works. It, when you're doing the works thing, you come to a sense, whether you realize it or not, that God owes you because you have done all these uh, works. It's sort of like a balancing sheet. Yeah. And I've done enough, so he owes me right. this, that, and the other thing, and God owes us nothing. Right. You know. So if you have a person who doesn't have, hasn't based themselves in the knowledge of these doctrinal truths about who God is and how salvation comes to you, how, how you are truly justified. If you miss that piece of your instruction, which in many ways is what this author is doing with them. He's saying, look, you have, you have these elementary ideas about um, that God is, right? That he exists, that, that um, um, well, how do they say it? They, they give the rendition here of in... Let me go back to six. Uh, the foundation of repentance from dead works, of faith toward God, instruction about washing, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. So they have these basic concepts that they agree with, that they acknowledge, that they nod their head up and down and say, yes, that's right, that's right. But then they don't, ha they don't go to that next step then to embrace the fulfillment of what God promised. So the essence is then they become... Uh, kind of, uh, what is the right word? Um, legalistic, right? They become legalistic about religion rather than relationship with God. Now, once you get that straightened out, right? Once you understand you've got salvation by grace, once you've learned your doctrines, now the next step is to take that congregation and take them into what he's doing in chapter 11, however. Once you know the truth about how you got saved and you're in agreement with that, and then there's a true salvation that has occurred, now you do need to go into the next phase and say, okay, now that you are saved, what should you be doing? Growing by doing what? By doing the works of God. So it's like you cannot, you cannot throw out one and the other. You start with the foundation. That's why I was impressed with the fact in chapter 1, 2, and 3, he starts with a foundation. He says, it's, this is who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of God's promise. He is the seed. He is the son. He is the begotten. He is God come in flesh. He came in flesh to pay for your sins as I promised. 
right? And I have defeated the devil. I've rendered him powerless. And now, I w- now that you have that knowledge base established, now I want you to move into, press into a maturing of your faith. The scriptures tell us that we are to walk in the work that God has preordained for us. Yes, Ephesians, that's right. Right. Yeah. Right. I I can tell you that I I think I started out my faith walk with God, um, doing just the works, just showing up to church, filling the squares, and I mean just being there and being exposed, right? And. And I think that there's nothing wrong with that. But if I had stayed just there, I would have had an empty faith, a faith that was based on my works, on my accomplishments, and when I failed, then I would be crushed. I also, because I would not have matured in the word of God, I also would not be able to discern true good from true evil. You know, the world talks about what's good and what's evil all the time, and you hear it, particularly right now in this political realm that we're in right now. And sometimes what they call good is absolutely, according to God's word, evil. They turn everything upside down. But least we think this is a new thing, it's quoted in the Old Testament as that being a truth problem, even back then. We see in the early, early birthing of the church when we did the book, of, do you guys remember when we studied the book of Acts? How we saw almost all the same problems that we battle with right now in our churches, they were battling with right almost at the very get-go of the establishment of the early church. So humanity, mankind, has not changed. The problems of the world have not really changed. Um, The one thing that is true and consistent is God and his truth. And so what he says is to us... um, when you, when you are my child, you walk by faith. He says, and my righteous one shall live by faith. So that's what we're trying to develop today is a better understanding of what, about what it means to live by faith. Yes, you need to understand. You have to understand that what is to believe is the foundation. And we call that justification. So I'm going to write that up here. And I do that because I don't want, as we're in conversation with all the rest of these things, which are all works-based, this is what they did, this is what they did, this is what they did. These are demonstrations of what you have done once you've been justified. You don't get justified by the doing of these things. These are people who started out first by believing God, as Abraham did, and it was credited to them as righteousness. God sealed them, placed his mark upon them, They had their salvation, right? But what we see is that these are people who, Abraham's a lot like my journey in that it was a progressive thing, little by little. You start out by taking that first step and saying, um, I know I should be in church every Sunday morning. I I don't really understand what that pastor's saying up there, but I'm going to sit and listen anyway, right? And eventually, as the years went by and as I got older and progressed in ex- life experiences, God began to show me the truth realities to who he was and his, what, that his word was true, little by little. And that's what Abraham did. He started by simply, by faith, stepping out. He, he came into the land of Canaan. He, he left his home in Ca- the land of Chaldeans and came first to Canaan. He wasn't yet saved. 
He wasn't saved by, by righteousness, it says, until chapter 15, when the day God cut covenant with him, and it says that he believed God concerning the seed that was to come, the son, the, the land, the seed, and the, and the nation that God had promised to him. When he believed God concerning those things, he was credited on that day as righteous. Prior to that, he was in this progressive journey. So it, it can be confusing. You're not sure at what point sometimes where people are. Are they in the journey that's leading them to a place of justification? And what I think, though, is true, and what this author seems to suggest, is that once you actually come into justification, there is an enlightenment that God gives you, and a truth understanding about his word that that draws you into wanting to know his word more. And that's what he's challenging them right away here in chapter um, 5 where he says, you have remained babies, you need to be pressing into maturity if in fact you're, you are <laughs> saved. Mm -hmm. That's right. Denying the church the ability to grow, because I think there's something very holy about us studying during the week and coming together every week. I do too, and I think that that these small groups that our churches have been getting. It, it, it's kind of been coming around because when you have a big church like we have here at, at this church, it's, it's very large. It's easy to get lost in the masses. You can show up and be still an island. You can sit in that pew all by yourself and get up and walk and go home. And there's been no iron sharpening iron. There's been the pastor speaking at you, and certainly the Holy Spirit can, can you know, stir up in you things that you need to, to know. But I think the, one of the values is what he says in chapter 10 is do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together, but exhort one another all the more as you see what? The day approaching. What day that is approaching is he speaking about? The coming of Jesus Christ, right? The day when he will bring his kingdom uh, to be on this earth as he has promised. We're looking forward to, to Jesus' return. Okay, so the result of faith, faith will be, for concerning justification, they have, this is what they are to believe. The result of faith is that they will enter the rest of God. That is speaking of justification, okay? Now, once that is established, then, then we're moving on in the book, and he does so, right? Although he, he continues in chapters 1 through 10, he is developing doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. So let's just put that on here. Chapters 1 to 10 is doctrine. And we've talked about this before, that that is a, a, a what, what they call a segment division for the book of Hebrews. So chapter 1 to 10 is doctrine. The last uh, chapters then are what? Application. So doctrine meaning the qualities or the truth factors that you need to know for justification, things which you need to be in agreement with God about because they're truth about who Jesus is and what he has done for you and what he has accomplished and how he's, he's uh, inaugurated this new uh, uh, way to God and that through his flesh you now have access to the Father. What a contrast that was to their old covenant, to, their, to the law, how where they had a priest and a curtain and no one entered except the, the high priest and only once a year and had uh, this, this huge rendition of, of, 
uh, systems that they had to accomplish in order to even approach God. Now we boldly enter into the throne room of God by the flesh which has been rent for us. The blood has been shed. He has rendered the, po- the devil powerless. We know from previous studies that, that what happened is on the day of Jesus' death on the cross, the temple veil was rent from top to bottom at, and what became then disclosed? The holy of holies. Telling us now what in contrast to what they had before. The way of access is there. And therefore, because access has now been made available from that point on, what they can now know is that in the new covenant, what has been actually dealt with? The sin, the the debt for sin, that propitiation for sin has been paid. Prior to that, they had a system of shedding blood, shedding blood, shedding blood of animals and and different kinds of sacrifices. Did it ever actually deal with with sin? No, it didn't. It was a temporal thing. It was an, pardon? They, uh, for, uh, you know, that's a whole nother conversation but the yeah they don't have a temple they don't give sacrifices yet they have now a new system in place where they do it by almsgiving and prayers and they they use it as a substitute for the temple how they justify that in their mind as being acceptable I, I don't know except that they've had some kind of new revelations through their prophets or something you know yeah. I mean, if you Google it, I, ha- I remember years back when we did a study on this, and I found a sheet, and it has sheet and sheet and sheet, of, and the whole thing was on the idea that they now give alms, and, in other words, they pay out money to the poor and so forth, and then they have prayers, and those are their sacrifices. No shedding of blood. Would you not compare that with um, Cain's approach to God? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They, you know, these religions all steal from one another. <laughs> a lot of concepts are found in a lot of them, but absolutely the idea of all... But, yeah, and yet with their, with their system, with an Islamic system, they shed pe- other people's blood. Not God did, their God does not come and shed blood. They shed their blood for their God, and that's how they enter into heaven, with a guarantee. Otherwise, there's no guarantee. Right. They are very, and I, those Orthodox Jews are really looking forward to the day when the real temple is going to be built again. And they have all the articles in place. They've prepared all, all the clothing for their priests and all the articles for making their sacrifices. Everything's ready. and It's in a museum right now in Jerusalem and other places. Um, and they're waiting for the day. They, have the corn, they even have the cornerstone for their temple that they want to build one day. I know, three and a half years and it's going to be gone. It's amazing. All right. So now what we see is when we look at the subject of faith in the book of Hebrews, the first piece of it, the apples piece of it, is is the the fundamental justification work that occurs with, with faith, with the subject of faith. The secondary one is going to be sanctification. And occasionally he filters in there the promised hope of the glorification right? He gives that as what you look forward to as you're working out the, the sanctification of your faith. 
So now what we're going to do is we're going to make a, a flip here and, and look just to see all the things that, that we've learned so far. We see that what is to believe. We see the doctrines that were presented in chapters 1, 2, and 3 in particular. And then the result of it in chapter 4 is that those who believe God concerning those truth factors, they enter into the rest of God. Okay, that's, that's your justification. Now, uh, Hebrews 10 I told you last week in, in Hebrews 10, 35 to 39, we see a kind of a transitional paragraph, right? That takes us out, takes us from the doctrine that's been taught already in these first 10 chapters. And then there's a little transition paragraph that leads us into the last segment division, which is going to be the application qualities, which is primarily focused on sanctification, correct? Okay, so looking at 10, um, I actually, I went up into 34 to grab a little bit of this, but I want you to tell me what we see in um, 34 all the way through uh, about what does he exhort them to do concerning faith? What does he exhort them to do in those verses? Somebody just read it. That'd be the easiest. Let's read verse uh, 34 to the end of 10. Who wants to read that out loud? Just to get our minds in place. Okay, Susan, thank you. For you judged sentences to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. What a nice transitional pivot he makes right there in those verses. If you're careful to really examine it, what he does is he takes you from doctrine into some to personal application in your life concerning what, what uh, this faith, the subject of faith. And the first thing he tells them is that they have need of what? Of endurance. So concern in, uh, let me do this. Uh, let's go 10. Uh, 36. It says you have need of endurance. So he tells them to endure in faith. Has he mentioned that previous to this? Has there been a place where he's told them that they, he may not have used the word endure, he may have used the word hold fast. Has he told them previously that they needed to hold fast? What was the message that he gave about those who, who hold fast? Do you remember? I'll say it again. The that they will receive the promise. Okay. Any others? Um, I think it's in four. Let's go back to four. Up oh, three. Sorry, I get it. Got it wrong. In chapter three, but he here is where Craig had brought it up earlier about how Christ is displayed then as the ultimate picture of faithful walking, of faithfulness in this life, right? And he says, "But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are. If what? If we hold fast, how long?" Firm until the end. And then he repeats that in verse 14. He says, For we have become partakers of Christ if what? Right. 
All right, so now, how would you explain that to someone? Would you, if somebody looks at that, they're going to go, oh, so I have to do something in order to be saved. Is that right? Is that what it sounds like, though, if you were just reading? There you go. He's simply saying there needs to be evidence that, in fact, there has been justification. And the ones who do hold fast have been justified. There's that flash, too, about in one of the letters in Revelation, they have left their first love. Mm-hmm. Yes. I thought of that myself this morning when I was thinking about things. That's exactly right. Because the, 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 it t- which takes you into the idea of you've been justified, but how do you know that? It's by the evidence of what you're doing. And, and, but you have to f- establish first the justified point. You have to be justified by faith in God, by faith in Jesus as the Son of God, that he is the begotten, the son who came and did all the things that he said. And that is your first love. That is the most fundamental, most important part. And you can never leave that. And that's why this author began everything that he does in these first 10 chapters by saying you have to press in to the maturity of your faith because your first love is the most essential. So don't ever leave your first love. However, don't just stay there either because this can't be all about just head knowledge. It can't just be about you getting smarter and smarter. You have to live it out. My righteous one shall live by faith. And so he goes on to then say, how did the men of old demonstrate that they were men of faith? Right? All right. Um, so he says to endure in faith in, cha- in chapter 10, 36, he says you have need of endurance. And then he tells them one more thing about it. What is that? That what are they to not do? Not to shrink back from doing what? Doing God's will. So it kind of goes back to the Ephesians one that you brought up earlier, Carrie, about that we are saved unto good works, right? Saved by grace, but saved unto doing good works. You must not shrink back from doing God's will. Do not shrink back. From doing God's will. Okay, so in this case, he's saying endure and talks about the idea of doing God's will. So now what we can clearly see by, by this transition verse right in here, he's moved from justification to what? Because this is all about us, right? This is about our response to what God has done for us. God saved us, and now how do we respond in that, right? All right, now, 1036, uh, do not shrink back from doing. Now, what is the outcome for those who do endure, according to those verses? There's like three, uh, two or three little things that you're promised that pertain to the other subject. Yeah, okay, go on. Tell me what you're seeing in there. What is, it that he's, what is it that he's making promises to concerning those who will endure? Okay, go to verse 34. What does he tell them about, about the things that they are doing? Hold on, I've got to open my chapter here. 7, 8, 9, 10. 
Yes, that you, there's a p- better possession and a lasting one. He says, but you showed sympathy. He's talking about the things that they're going to be doing, right? This is what you are going to be doing because that's what he's moved. He's moved from justification into sanctification. You have need of endurance and you, and you are to continue in doing the will of God. And he says, for, and then he gives an example of when they did something that showed faith. I think that's interesting. He starts out by saying, these are the things I've seen in you that you have shown that you have faith. Then he moves into chapter 11, and then he says, this is what the men of old did that showed that they had faith. So he starts by giving them actually an example out of their own life to say, I've seen faith in you. I've seen demonstrations of faith. Now, interesting to me too is the idea that sometimes people can walk a faith walk, or it looks like a faith walk for a period of time, and then in time, Something happens and all of a sudden you realize that is a person who does not know the Lord. Something will happen, they'll, they'll, make it, they'll, they'll turn around, they'll run from God, they'll, they'll, they'll make huge decisions that are a- absolutely blatantly in contrast to the will of God and to the word of God. And, and then they begin, and I have a couple of people in my personal life who had at one time made a claim to having put their faith and trust in Jesus and then turn around now and to utterly deny him. It happens, yeah. <laughs> right? And that might be a slightly different thing. I mean, if it, but if, if what is coming out of their mouth is, I do not believe in God and I'm apostating, I am leaving it. But I would almost venture to say they wouldn't be in grief care. Because grief care still connects them to the Christian. It tells me there's a thread that they're still hanging on to. And there's a glimmer of hope, right? That the hope is, and the hope in their own life, I think, it, we are not the one to judge the heart. What we're to do is judge our own life and to make our own, our own um, evaluations for ourselves personally. And that is what this author is doing. He's literally saying, I'm concerned, I'm seeing things that, that make me concerned about your faith walk. But then he turns it back to them and he says, you need to evaluate your, your own life, least any of you may come short of it. Um, I listened to a really good sermon last night, or uh, a guy named Colin Smith. He's on my Facebook page for any of you who want to go and listen to him. I enjoy him a lot because he's got a Scottish accent, so he's fun to listen to for one thing. But he's also very discerning. And in there, he talks about about um, all these different points. What is faith and how does faith change a person's life in Christ? Um, and then he, he gives the idea, uh, a long list of things about bearing fruit for God. Why does faith produce fruit? So he takes it to the next level, and, and he goes back here. Why does faith, true faith, if it's saving faith, why does it produce fruit? Well, when you go back to justification, it's because of what God has done for you, which is giving you his spirit. And by his spirit, he gives you the power to endure. And that is why in Hebrews 12, what does he come back and say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? He is the author, right? But he's also the what? The perfecter of faith. So Jesus establishes you in faith. He empowers you by his spirit to be faithful to him. And then, then the fruit then is born out of that. And he actually goes there with this. And he, 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 he goes back to covenant, the idea that two become one. And for that reason, then you're able to bear fruit. And apart from Christ, you can bear nothing good. There is no fruit that, that is truly righteous fruit. Um, 
There was something I meant to tell you. Anyway, it, it left my mind. But anyway, okay, let's go back to this. All right, so let's go on and let's talk about um, what is, okay, there were some points. In verse 34, there's a promise of glorification factors concerning faith, that the result then of, of believing God and being justified, working out your faith through sanctification, and he says, and as you do that, you are to set your eyes upon things that you're not yet seen, right? Tell me what it is that he has promised to them in verse 34. A, yes, a better and lasting possession. A better and lasting possession. I haven't got room to get all this on here. <laughs> that, that's in verse in 1034. And it's answering the question, what is the outcome for those who do endure? Those who endure in sanctification. There is a better and lasting possession. And in verse 35. Receiving what was promised. A great reward. Now, we can take that a couple of different ways. Is that speaking about um, the idea of a reward as in, um, well done, my good and faithful servant, right? You were faithful in a few, I'm going to give you more. Or are you saying, oh, a great reward in that regard would be a great reward is, is referencing the ultimate reward, which is eternal life, which takes you back to, in a, in a kind of a, funky way, but it takes you back to sanctification, or to justification, rather. The idea that you were justified, and therefore you received that reward. Right? Again, his guy, he winds and twists in every way there is, and he makes it difficult to make really clearly defined points. But I do love the, that by it, by your faith, by the fact that you have endured that we have the preserving of the soul. Now, we've talked about this one once before. Did anybody do word studies on that particular one? What it means? And it's contrasted with the destruction, right? Go back to, to chapter 10. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but, so there's the contrast, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. So what is the destruction about? What kind of destruction is that talking about? Anybody look those words up by chance when they hit that part of their work? No, okay, I'll give it to you. <laughs> Destruction is number 684. It means perdition, damnable, and hell. So it's speaking of eternal judgment of the soul, okay? That's what the contrast is there. Then he speaks about the preserving of the soul. Preserving is the word purchased possession, it means obtaining. Now, how do we become a purchased possession and how are we obtained concerning our soul? And what do we purchase from and to? We're purchased from sin and we are, uh, become, we belong to God. Belong, okay. So it's literally speaking of this federal headship move, right? Purchased out of the, the federal headship of Adam and being placed into the federal headship of Christ, right? That it's a purchasing by the blood and it especially in this particular book, it talks about the sacrifices and how Jesus is the better than sacrifice. By his blood we are redeemed. There is propitiation in his blood. So the word preserving is speaking of being purchase, a purchased possession and be, being obtained. Uh, in other words, to obtain our 
soul's salvation. And then the word soul there has two possible interpretations by definition. The first one of for soul, and it's number 5590, P-S-U-C-H-E is the transliteration. The, uh, P-S-U-C-H-E. Yeah, say it again. Suke. I think Craig's got it. The first possible choice for definition, you know how the, the Greek is. They give you two choices and then your context rules for interpretation, right? So the first one is a living soul, life, or the body. It could be that. The second one for soul is the mind and the heart, and it's the essence which differs from the body. In other words, the spiritual part of who a person is, right? The mind and the soul. So then you have to decide in the context of what's just been said where you're, you're, you are being, um, you are not going to shrink back to destruction or hell or eternal damnation, but you are going to do what? Have what? The preserving of the soul. So in this context, what is the definition there about the soul? Is it the physical body or is it the, the spiritual body? It's the spiritual part of who we are. So it's, and it's a preservation, which means a rescuing or a saving or a moving out from one into another. So it is literally comparing he heaven and hell, right? It's saying you're not going to go to hell, but you are going to go to eternal life. You're not going to be damned. You are going to be saved. So and the reason I think that was important is because he speaks about this, again, like he keeps doing. He keeps merging together sanctification, justification, and glorification. And in this, in his conclusion statement, he takes you back to the basics. The one who, pre, who perseveres, the one who endures in faith, who does not shrink back from doing the will of God, there is a better possession and a lasting possession for them. They are going to be receiving what was promised, and it's a great reward. And he's saying to them, but he, I believe better things of you. You are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but you are of those who, who have the preserving of the soul. So he's making a... Again, a congregational statement that he has the good intention, the good hope, the good confidence that they are those who are being saved, okay? And he says so. They're doing it because of what? What is it that he's looking for in their life to give him the confidence to say that? What they're doing, right? The fact that they are doing the will of God and they are enduring in faith. And what he has said before that, he says, well, you had been made a pu public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. You showed sympathy to prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. So again, Dividing apples and oranges and pears. <laughs> we got, we've got sanctification, we got justification, sanctification, and glorification all in one little compact area right there in his transition. And so it is our responsibility then to discern which one applies where and to properly apply our, our understanding of doctrines. How do you get saved? And then what do you do once you are saved? And what is it that you are looking forward to? And in the God, and in truly the whole word of God, but particularly in the New Testament, you see the words salvation and faith and believe intertwined. And often there's also added into there things like love and obedience as also qualities which can be mingled and mean the same thing. Those who love me know me. 
In other words, you're saved if you actually love me. And when he's talking about loving him, he says, those who obey me love me. <laughs> so he mixes them all. Uh -huh. Again, going back to the rest and sanctification, the rest is living by faith, which means we keep our eyes on the future. And so we can let go of, you know, money and possessions and things in this life. When things go wrong and you lose everything, mm -hmm. you don't freak out because you see right. that God is moving you elsewhere. How much better is it for us who are, when, those of us who are in faith, how do you compare your life to the life of, of someone that you know that's an unbeliever and when hard things come, when difficult things? Do you think that this uh, group of believers here that he was writing to were difficult things coming for them? And were they even in the midst of some really difficult things? I would even go so far as to say as coming into faith was even a difficult thing because they had to leave behind them their faith system that they had worshipped through and under for all those years. It had to be a hard trip. How many of us have a hard time when our Sunday school gets rearranged and we have to pick a new seat? I mean, we hate change. We hate change, really. You go to show up to church on Sunday morning and someone's in your pew. You know, and it's like, oh gosh, now what am I going to do? I don't know where to sit, right? We just, we freak out. So <laughs> I'm saying difficult in that, not that there, there was a spiritual battle per se, but just of their own will and of their own psyche and of their own emotional connection to all of these things. Moving into a new faith system for them was, was a challenge, right? But on top of that, there was persecution. We know that we are where in the timeline on history, about what year? Is this being written? What is our window? Does it before, 70. before 70 AD, because we know what is still standing, the temple. So it's surely sometime before 70 AD. We're not quite sure how many years, but, you know, five years, three years, we don't know. Um, but what is going to happen in 70 AD, ultimately? That temple. And did Jesus not even warn them that that was going to happen? Not one stone shall be left upon another. And, and so he gave a warning that that day was coming. Believing God about those things and knowing that, how much stronger do we have, um, or how much better do we have an ability to handle and cope with emotional stress, changes in our life? Um, look at what's going on in our nation today. Turn on the, t I know, we all roll our eyes. It's like, you listen to the news, it makes you want to just throw up. It's so sad, and it's so sick. disturbing and sick, yes. And so would it not be really easy for us to get discouraged? So what anchors you so that you're not? I mean, I know we can slump in there. I do too. I get in a slump, and I'm, I'm running through the house, and my husband and I are yelling at each other. We're not mad at each other, but we're yelling because we're mad at the TV, right? <laughs> no, I didn't see that, but yes. Okay, so you've answered my question. What is it that helps us not get down in that slump so that, so that as life is dishing things out to us, as it did to them in their day, how do you not get discouraged? Okay, and? There you go. He is the one who raises up kings and puts them down. And so if you have that knowledge 
of tr- about what God has said, what is true, and you're holding fast to that, and that believing that God is, and that he is a rewarder of those that love him, and if you believe that, then when bad things start happening, like what we see going on in our nation right now, we can hold fast to the fact that it is God that's still the sovereign of the universe. We may not feel like he is right now, and what if the person that we don't want actually gets in there and is our president? Then what? Have we managed to get through the past few years? (laughs) Yeah? I mean, and for many of us, that wasn't our choice. So yet we're still here, and we're still persevering, and we're still moving forward. And is there hope? Is there joy? Is there God? And and you nailed it, Lisa. It is knowing that God is sovereign. He's the one that raises them up and puts them down. And even the bad ones. What about Nebuchadnezzar when he showed up? He came in pillaging and plundering, didn't he? Destroyed them. That was the point I was going to make. We, we get concerned about Hillary or Donald Trump. Look who uh, Daniel had to deal with, and he served them, and he served God. Yes, he did, and he did so at the same time. And, and, he, and when we see the, the quote in here about for he's, so he is actually making these points in reference to this Habakkuk quote right? He's talking about the hope of the promises that you have of a better lasting possession, of receiving what has been promised, which is a great reward, of having salvation, not damnation, that you have the salvation of your soul. Even if the physical body does not get saved through all this, you have the salvation of your soul. And that is what you are to keep your focus upon, that glorification promise that comes, and therefore you will endure. You have need of endurance. And he said, and then he quotes Habakkuk. So now you've had a couple weeks to go back and look at that. How many of you did? Went back and looked at the Habakkuk verse. Come on, you guys. You all of you were going. Uh, you, I remember when it came up last, the last time we were together, and everybody's like, "What? That's not Jesus? <laughs> really? That's not Je- okay." So who is the one that is coming? It, in, the, in the literal understanding of, of, of that, he was speaking about the evil one that was going to come in and oppress God's people. It was Nebuchadnezzar specifically in that time, right? Yep. Yeah, right. That's right. And, okay, so now, why would this author quote that? In the, the situation for these people, what did we just say was about to come on them? Persecution. Another persecution. This time, not Nebuchadnezzar, but who? Rome. Rome was going to come in. It was going to literally destroy Jerusalem to the ground. And the, and the temple was going to be destroyed. And they were going to be dispersed. The Jews as well as the Christians, for that matter. But in particular, can you see now why he says you have need of endurance? Do you think that maybe in the back of his mind he was remembering when Jesus said that at some point not one stone shall be left upon another? That he was thinking about those? Th- I think so. And so he's seeing that. And so he quotes under inspiration of God that they, are t- they have need of endurance. You and I today have need of endurance. Same thing. Do we have a Nebuchadnezzar uh, in, our li- in our immediate world? Do we have a Rome? that wants to come and crush our cities and our lifestyle and the way of life that we've always known as Americans. Yes. And, and, and also, if you want to take it to yet even 
a future time for us, not the immediate, but is there one coming that we know it ultimately is going to crush? And yet we go back to what, uh, what was, uh, Lori said about uh, Nebi, uh, Daniel chapter 2. It is God who raises up and God that puts down. And we know because of God's prophetic word that one day this Antichrist is going to come. And so, so do we have need of endurance when bad things start to happen? When our nation looks like it's crumbling around us, do we need to keep in mind what God has promised? The promise is we have the salvation of the soul, so ultimately we win, right? Because God won. God won for us, so we win. But you must endure. So what does that mean to endure? What is it that he's expecting from us? Go back to chapter 11. Let's, let's move forward to, uh, we didn't get into the word studies, but I really want to do the other instead. Do you, do you, did everybody do their word studies on what, what faith meant and so forth? Right? Hopefully you did those on your own. I'm just going to, assurance and conviction, basically were words you should have looked at. What did you find out about faith and believe? What, did you get a kind of a, a revelation? One's a noun and one's a verb. It's the same word. <laughs> yeah. And believing is more the trust quality of actually stepping into it. So one, in the, because it's the verb, it's the action quality of it. One is more of the mind, the mindset of conviction. The other is by faith you step into the conviction. You exercise the, the conviction. So it's really close. Same word. Faith and believe are, are the same word. P-I-S-T-I-S was faith. And P-I-S-T-E-U was believe. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, basically, it means that we maintain our peace within no matter what's going on. Absolutely. Right, right. And for me, for me, I love particularly what Hebrews' message is because it all starts with a foundational understanding of pressing into the, to the, the faith, pressing into the word, knowing the doctrines of your faith. That's what's going to anchor you. When you go out into real life, you can work all you want, but if you don't have a foundational knowledge of being able to discern good from evil because you know what God's word says about certain things, then you can be out there working trying to do good things, but often making many mistakes because you don't have doctrinal knowledge. You have to, every single person is spiritually gifted by God, correct? When, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you receive spiritual gifting. We all are gifted in a variety of ways. Not everyone is, is a, like me, a teacher, right? Or I hope I'm a teacher. <laughs> I attempt to be a teacher. Um, but we each have a responsibility to exercise that gift based on knowledge. And it starts there. So you have to equip yourself with understanding of God's word, knowledge of God's word. That's why I think he spent 10 chapters first establishing the truth factors, all the doctrines. Before he got into, now this is how you're going to live it out. Don't, you know, people who jump in serving God when they first get saved is so cute. And, and, they, and they, they all do it. I did it, right? Jump right in and I'm in the choir and I'm helping in the nursery. And I was, I was doing all kinds of things, anything that they would let me come do. And then they paid me not to come back to choir. <laughs> Please don't come back and we'll pay you. <laughs> um, but 
we have to have a base of knowledge first and foremost. So establish yourself in knowledge of God's truth. Then whatever it is that you are doing, it will be done in a way where you have discerned between good and evil. You'll be a, the most effective server for God in whatever capacity you're serving in if you have knowledge, true knowledge of God, his doctrines. Uh -huh. And one reason that's so important is because so many are totally unchurched today. Oh, yeah. Have no, you know, you can't evangelize <clears throat> just by telling them, you know, that Jesus died for your sins. They have no idea what sin is. They have no idea no. what God is. They <laughs> have no idea what Jesus is. Yes. Yes. I, I've told this before, but years back when I was work, still working as a corporate chaplain, I had a client in, uh, that had had an affair. And she, so, but she was upset when I came in to see her. She's all in tears and she's crying on my shoulder and just going on. And I said, well, what's wrong? Tell me what's up. And she said, well, my boyfriend, he didn't come, he didn't come home to see me. He didn't come to see me. He's been, he's been back for three days and he hasn't come to see me. I said, well, where did he go? What's going on? He said, well, he went home to his wife. His wife just had a baby. <laughs> I went, okay, they have no knowledge of righteousness. They don't even understand what an adulterous woman is. They do not understand, you know, the, the difference between evil and good. And she's all sad and <laughs> brokenhearted. I, well, I won't tell you what I told her, but anyway, <laughs> I was direct. <laughs> Another word that, um, that should be a study also is pistos. Yeah. Yes, and mine said resulting in conduct, right? Right. Absolutely. Which is why then he follows chapter 12 or chapter 11 with 12, where he says, Therefore, set your eyes upon Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of your faith, because he's your ultimate example. Right? The ultimate example of living a faith walk is to look at what Jesus did. How many of you guys have studied the Gospel of John? Do you remember in the Gospel of John how every time Jesus was, uh, would, would put forth the truth message and he would say, I only do the things that the Father does. I only say the things that the Father says. I and the Father are one, right? And often he would even say things like, well, my time is not yet. My time is not yet. My time is now. My time has come. And he does this because he's living his life in sync with God the Father, knowing the plan, obviously, because he is God. That's helpful, right? But what he's teaching us in his flesh is that in the flesh, he submits the flesh even to the, to the despairs of the world and even to the, the horrible things that he had, was inflicted with at the cross, he submitted to God the Father in obedience to the plan of the Father for the ultimate good of us, right, of man whom he came to give help to. So you and I then, as we transition then from chapter uh, the end of chapter 10, where he takes you through seeing justification, sanctification, and glorification down here, I'll put this on here. Now he lays in heavy in after we get through the definitions, we go into the living by faith quality. He says, he actually, in that verse that he quotes, not only does he give us the, the knowledge that there was one coming, that there was going to be for them even more difficulties, even more persecutions, and they had need of endurance. And, but yet he also says, but, 
My righteous one shall live by faith. And then he goes on to demonstrate to them what that meant. So tell me the things. We've got about 15 minutes. I just want to have some discussion about the things that you saw in the, in the examples that were given. The examples of Hebrews 11 develop a deeper understanding of what a true living faith should be like. If we examine it prayerfully, it will help develop your understanding of saving faith versus what Jesus rebuked in Matthew 23 about a pious claim to salvation without a life of righteous living to accompany it. So Jesus actually, remember you whitewashed tombs? Who warned you of the coming wrath, right? And so he, ta- he tells him, and, and then he also speaks on, you will know a tree by its fruit. He says there should be righteous uh, fruit in your life. There should be evidence of true faith in you. Um, those who, James covers the opposite. James says that there is also a faith which can, which can lead to destruction. What kind of faith would that be? Now, we're not talking about saving faith now. Now we're talking about just the concept of faith. The word faith can also just mean a persuasion and a conviction, and you can apply that to anything, okay, in the original language. But, but when you apply it to the gospel message, then you're speaking of saving faith, and it's what you have faith in. And that's why this book starts with developing what it is that you're to believe, what it is that you're to have your faith in. And in the, and in, in the realm of the spiritual, it is to be faith in God and faith in who Jesus is, all the promises of God, that what he says he will do, right? That's the, the faith and the confidence. But what about the other faith? James, somebody open up James... Okay, there you go. Now, does anybody have James 2 open by chance? Let me see if I can. Okay. Okay, go ahead and read it. Wow. Then you go on into chapter 2, and I'm going to add to that. That was excellent. It's in chapter 2, starting in verse 17. So, e- so even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead. So in other words, there is a faith that's death. You can have faith in all kinds of things. You know, I believe I'm going to lose 20 pounds this week. But, you know, it's probably dead faith. Okay. <laughs> Um, But someone may well say that you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. They have a knowledge. In other words, we, this particular kind of faith that's being developed in the book of Hebrews is a living faith. And that's why he says, my righteous one shall live by faith. You are to live what you believe. If you really believe that Jesus is who he says, you set your eyes upon the promises of glorification, but you live this life in sanctification, doing the will of God. 
okay? And now he's going to give us the example of that in Hebrews 11 through all of these people. Let's just go through some of those. We saw Abel. We talked about this one already probably more than we need to, but in essence, he gave an appropriate uh, sacrifice, right? All right, and so basically, what was he doing in, in giving an appropriate sacrifice? What was it that, his, what, that was a righteous action in that? Believing what God said and doing it, he, was, he, he had faith, he obeyed. he obeyed God, bowing his knee, basically, to God's requirement. In this case, God required what? A blood sacrifice. A blood sacrifice. Okay. All right. Enoch. This one's a little more mystical. It's not, there's not enough information exactly, but what did you see out of it? Yes. He was pleasing to God. Now, you can take that anywhere you want, right? He was pleasing to God, and he was no, and he was no, uh, and he was taking it up, right? He believed that God was, and he was a rewarder. There you go. In the context of what we've just said, the definition on, in, that we, we have come up with is seeing that, that we believe that, he, that God is, and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. We also see that it's assurance of things hoped for and conviction of things not seen. So then when you move on to Noah, that one in particular shows a good demonstration. What did Noah do? He built an ark, okay? How significant was it that Noah built an ark? What is an ark? It's a boat. Where They had never had rain prior to this. There had never been, and there had never been flooding prior to this. They had had, how, ha, how was the earth watered in the days of Noah and before? A mist on the surface and water from the ground up. And so when rain started falling from the sky, he had never seen that. Now talk about faith to believe God. When God said, build a boat. And he didn't live under the ocean. No, he didn't live, yeah. But there were the four great rivers. True, but he didn't live on the river. <laughs> It says, it says in the Garden of Eden, and it says before that it, the water. That's right. And he that but that, but that was in all of the earth. All of the earth was watered from the ground up. Prior to that, there was no rain. This is part of the story of Noah. You have to go back and, and look for it. Be, oh, okay. I will show. I'll get it for you, Carrie. I'll get it for you later, Carrie. But in that storyline, the the perp, the one of the emphases about Noah's faith was the idea that it had never rained, and the fact that he was building a boat on dry land <laughs> made him go. You know, by faith, I'm going to believe that God says what, what he's going to do, that he's going to bring rain upon the land. And I think there's actually a verse that says that there had never been rain on the land before. There you go. That's right. All right. So that's Noah. He believed what God told him, and he basically, he obeyed. He just did what God said. He didn't understand why God was wanting him. Have you ever had a time in your life with, when you've done that? Where you know God's telling you to do something, but you really don't know why, but you're just going to be obedient and you do it? Yeah, I have, yeah. Okay, Abraham, what did Abraham do? He moved. Boy, I can relate to that one. Moving to an unfamiliar land, in spite of, and in, and in his case, in spite of the impossibility of it also, he was looking toward what was God's promises to him. What, was God, what had God promised him? Well, they would possess the, land. the land and a descendant, a descendant, an heir from his own body, right? 
How old was he when, the when that heir finally arrived? A hundred years old. So in spite of the impossibility of God being able to do it, he believed God, right? So he believed God in spite of the impossibilities of it. Um, I always think of that verse that says, nothing is impossible with God. I love that. Um, and then once the son came, which came by an impossibility, what did he do with his son? He was willing to sacrifice. Why was he willing to sacrifice? Had, wh what made him sacrifice to begin with? God told him. God said, take your son, your only son, to a mountain that I will show you. And there you are going to sacrifice him, right? And so he did that, believing what about God? According to Hebrews, Hebrews gives us this little tidbit of insight that I think is so great. That God could raise him from the dead. He had a, he had a, a belief that God could raise him from the dead. Sarah. What about Sarah? <laughs> she laughed, but it doesn't say that here. In this one, it says that she did what? She believed God. She, she believed him to be faithful, right? Yes. Uh, yeah, one of the prophets. Prophets. The prophet, who was it? John the Baptist and Elijah, Elizabeth and Elizabeth, jo John's, yes, John, Zachariah, is that his name? Zechariah. Okay, we'll get there. <laughs> it only took 50 of us, but we did good. <laughs> oh, <laughs> sorry, Zechariah. We know who you are. Once it comes, it's clear. <laughs> okay, so Sarah's heart basically was trusting God's promise, right? even when it looked impossible. Moses' parents, this is another one. There's not a lot of background to this, but we can draw assumptions from what they did as to what they must have known, right? What must they have known about their son? That he was special. We know that they believed him to be special, beautiful in the eyes of God is the way it says in the scripture, right? And in that, we have to draw conclusions that somehow God had revealed to them what God was going to do through Moses. They had been somehow either spoken to by prophecy or, or by a vision or somehow, and God had, had let them know that Moses was his instrument. And what did they do? Well, first of all, they defied the order to have the midwife kill him. Mm -hmm. They put him in the river and, and, and with Miriam watching. And what should they have been? Fearful. Right? They should have been absolutely terrified. If you don't obey the king's edict, you can lose your head. Right? I've been watching that, that TV series, Rain, part, and, and, and this, they showed a beheading on it last night about grossed out. But, but, you know, the kings were vicious in those days. And if you defy, the, and this was, this was Queen Elizabeth took off someone's head. But anyway, you know, they take off your head. So they had legitimate fear to fear of Pharaoh and his family, and yet it didn't. And then Moses himself, what did he do? He, killed somebody. he defended his own people. And, in, and I love what they contrast that with. They say, and yet, but he did not do what? About the pleasures. The pleasures of, the, that's right. He did not succumb to the temptations of power and wealth, did he? 
Power and wealth are two very strong, powerful pulls on the flesh, right? And certainly, even in the days when this was written about concerning faith, that, that you know, they were in danger of this, of the, the, the crushing of their city. It was soon coming upon them. And he's telling them, you must endure and do not succumb to what's easy because it, it's, you know, for your flesh anyway, that there's an easier path. Don't go to that, but rather hold fast to that which you know is true. So he was brave, all right? What about Rahab? Yeah, but you know, think about this. The, she's, she's in the city of Jericho. God's people, Israel, are coming in to, to uh, take it over, take over that city, and she helps them. So what does that tell you about what she had to have known about God's people and God? She obviously knew something, right, that, that the God of Israel was, was a certain kind of God and that she apparently must have known that God had made a promise to them that this land was going to be theirs. So somehow she knew these insights. And so in the end, she had to make a decision about how she was going to respond. Was she going to, uh, you know, help, the, help them or not? And in the end, she took the brave step to believe that God... Uh, being affiliated with God and God's agenda, getting on board with God was the right choice. And in the end, it was the right choice, right? What about those um, in 32 to 34? What do we see there? What kind of actions? Yeah. Do you guys have any stories about that in your own life where you see God shutting the mouths of lions for you or moving mountains? Yeah. <laughs> well, but you know, I think about the things that God has done in my life that seem impossible to me. Um, and he stepped in and really he protected us in many ways. He's provided for us in many ways. Things that I never thought I could have gone through, I actually came through, and here I am still standing, standing in him and standing for him and standing with him, you know, and that is such a testimony to your faith walk when God brings you through those hard times and you, are, you still remain holding fast, right? I had several where the Lord provided for me to get into law school at a time when I was left, you know, single mom with mm -hmm. And everything looks like an obstacle when you're under that kind of oppression. You're, you just feel so helpless and hopeless, right? And that's when he says, set your eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. If you know that one day you have a lasting possession and it is going to be with the one who sits at the right hand of the throne of God, who rules on high, who is the sovereign of the universe, who speaks a word and it is true and it is done and it is finished. It is even finished from before the foundation of the world in the eyes and the mind and the heart of God. And, he's, and he says of you and I that that's where we're to set our eyes when we're in the midst of trials. Have that kind of faith, the faith that works itself out, that's an active faith, right? And then in 13.7, did anybody get on to 13.7? I know we were only supposed to go through 10. I got one verse. Did you see 13.7? 
Somebody flip over there and read that. Because I think it's interesting that it follows the chapter 11. It actually is kind of at at the conclusion of all of this. It's a good conclusion. What does he say there? Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Wow. Consider the conduct of their faith and imitate their faith. Their conduct is what we are, we are looking for. It's the only thing you and I have, and it's the only thing. How many of you have ever heard that, the, that for many people, the only Bible the world will read is what? Is you, your life. And that's why there's a faith walk. That's why there's sanctification. That's why God says, be faithful and endure. Hold fast to the hope. Know your doctrine so that you can discern good from evil, and then walk ye in it. Right? Walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. Setting your eyes upon the future. 